So, you know, you put that together, the exacerbation of global warning for what? And also that people can chase a fantasy based on some algorithm is, that is itself based on gross misunderstanding of money, banking, and how the, how the world works. The primary fantasy that Bitcoin is selling is, you know, it's an ancient one. It's getting rich quick for nothing. You know, it's the guy selling you the Brooklyn Bridge and people buying it. And as long as those tokens for the Brooklyn Bridge are, have other, you know, have other suckers, then it's going to be, it's going to be value. Sooner or later, the music is going to stop. I don't know when it's going to stop, but the miners will go away because the miners are only in it to make money in the present. Anybody who, who hasn't cashed out in fiat currency will have nothing left of what they, what they thought they had on paper. Welcome to Activist MMT, a podcast about nonviolent MMT direct activism, introducing modern monetary theory to the world and conversations about learning MMT together. I'm your host, Jeff Epstein. Today I talk with author, researcher, and entrepreneur Brian Hanley about his paper, The False Premises and Promises of Bitcoin. The paper, published in 2013 and last updated in 2018, is essentially a summary of Bitcoin and cryptocurrency through an MMT lens. I've always been interested in Bitcoin, but never took the time to understand or even read about it. I just noticed the strong and even emotional views about it online, both for and against. On May 12, 2021, however, a tweet by Tesla CEO Elon Musk caused the worldwide price of Bitcoin to decrease by 17% in two hours. This caused the wealth of every single Bitcoin holder to lose a total of $170.6 billion. I suddenly became extremely interested in Bitcoin. I initially thought, actually strongly suspected, that Musk's tweet was part of an effort to deliberately manipulate the price of Bitcoin. My guest disagrees. Regardless, it's obvious that if such devastation can be caused in only a couple hours by a single tweet by a single billionaire, then the very foundation on which Bitcoin and cryptocurrency sits must be called into question. My fascination with this incident eventually led me to Brian's paper, among other MMT-informed sources about Bitcoin, links to which you can find in the show notes. Setting aside energy usage, there's nothing inherently wrong with Bitcoin or cryptocurrency. It's something to invest in, and if you know what you're doing, and you choose to do it, 
then you can make a bit of money off of it. The problem comes in falsely believing that Bitcoin and its ilk are in any way issued by national governments, and especially that Bitcoin can somehow replace the money of a government, or even more absurdly, the entire world. It betrays a fundamental misunderstanding of how modern economic systems work, were a government to adopt Bitcoin as its official currency, as just tragically, kind of, happened in El Salvador, then the government would make the personal wealth of every citizen vulnerable to another potential tweet by another billionaire. Those who choose to invest in Bitcoin choose to take that risk. Those who are unlucky enough to be among the nearly 7 million citizens of El Salvador, that risk and vulnerability was just foisted upon all of them. Bitcoin is backed not by gold or state power, but entirely by the group psychology of all Bitcoin holders and those that influence them. In other words, Bitcoin only has as much value as its holders believe it has, not unlike any other fad or mania, such as tulip bulbs in the 1600s and beanie babies in the 1990s. A topic Brian and I discussed that I don't think we cover sufficiently is the double spending problem. When a dollar bill or a nickel is spent, it physically changes hands. This is something we can keep track of easily and know for sure that it was only spent once. Digital money, digital anything, can be easily duplicated many times over. So how can it be ensured that a Bitcoin was only spent once? This is where the blockchain comes in. Every transaction ever made with every Bitcoin is permanently and publicly logged onto the blockchain. Although it's impressive that Bitcoin has solved this problem, the solution is also a reason why Bitcoin is so inefficient and energy hungry. Every few seconds, a new transaction is added to the blockchain, a process that must traverse every existing transaction, duplicating the information of the current transaction onto every block in the chain. This algorithm is central to the system and is the foundation to eliminating double spending. The other reason it's so energy hungry is the manner in which new bitcoins are generated, with each new coin requiring more computing power than the last. The process must also gracefully handle multiple simultaneous attempts to update the blockchain as well as deal with potential failures without corrupting existing items. Here's a crucial and related topic you'll hear Brian and I discuss. Modern society is only possible because of credit. Credit is the ability to obtain goods or services before payment is made. In other words, a loan or an IOU. Your boss obtains your labor before you get your paycheck. You pull out a credit card to buy a candy bar and a soda, but you don't actually pay for it until the bill comes due at the end of the month. I commit to purchasing a home, but don't actually pay for it until months later when seated at the closing table. And I don't really pay for it until my final mortgage payment 30 years later. Were Bitcoin to replace a government or bank's money, it would only be possible by eliminating the very concept of credit. Were this to happen, it would bring us back to the days when lords had vaults filled with gold and gave their customers certificates to obtain that gold 
on demand. As long as these forerunners to banks properly calculated the number of people who actually wanted to redeem their gold, they should be fine. If they estimate incorrectly, then there can be a run, and the Lord will have to literally defend their stock of gold, potentially running out if everyone wanted it back. In addition, gold certificates are also desirable because gold is heavy and inconvenient. It's also easier for regular people to hide and secure a certificate than an actual piece of gold. Critically, however, banking based on Bitcoin would be just that scenario, but without the certificates. Banks would literally only have gold. Customers could only deposit and withdraw and borrow actual gold. So the population and its needs continue to grow, but the amount of gold remains unchanged. It means that society is forced to become a 100% pure barter economy. In other words, modern banking and therefore modern society is made impossible. Finally, note that Bitcoin certificates or Bitcoin credit or what Brian calls virtual Bitcoin are impossible not because it's technically infeasible, but rather because the concept is simply anathema to the supporters of Bitcoin, resulting from a very libertarian, anti-government point of view. To close, I'd like to share a quote from Nathan Tenkis. Quote, The very fact that Bitcoin's price gets quoted in fiat shows that cryptocurrency is an adjunct to state money. I'll take the idea that pure cryptocurrencies are a threat to state money not when Bitcoin's dollar price gets very high, but when its dollar price is irrelevant. And now, on to my conversation with Brian Hanley. You can contact me on Twitter or Facebook, and you can email me at activistmmt at gmail.com. If you're enjoying Activist MMT even a fraction as much as I enjoy creating it, and if you're safe and secure and happen to be lucky enough to have some public deficit kicking around in your pocket, I hope you might consider becoming a monthly patron of Activist MMT. For as little as a dollar a month, you'll get exclusive content and updates, several days of early access to every episode, and for some, super early access, weeks and sometimes even months in advance. You can start by going to patreon.com slash activist MMT. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Whatever you can afford, I would be very grateful. Thank you. Now, on to our conversation. All right, there we go. <laughs> All right, we've made it five seconds. Victory so far. Oh boy. And you're gone again. And you're back. Okay. Um. All right. Uh. All right. Where my where's my stuff? All right. Well, cross fingers crossed. Let's see. Let's see what happens. Um. Brian, hello. Thank you for Hi. coming on. Yes, uh, thank you for coming on. I've been I've been waiting a while to do this. I I read your your uh, 
Uh, forgive me, the title skips my mind. Actually, it's right in front of me. What am I talking about? The false premises, promises and premises of Bitcoin, and uh, it was pretty enlightening. Um, so well, let's let's just get started. Brian, can you please introduce yourself and your background as it relates to economics, MT, and cryptocurrency? Sure. I have uh, two peer-reviewed publications in economics journals and a number of working papers uh, in monetary economics. One of those uh, peer-reviewed papers is about an issue with MMT and includes an overview of MMT. And just a quick historical note, uh, Adolf Hitler's banker used it to finance the Third Reich. MMT is just how the world works now. The uh, first paper uh, came when I was guest lecturing at the Levy School of Business under Kevin Walsh, who was a professor and venture capitalist that became a friend. And I, our residence started when I proved to him during one of his talks that uh, the algorithm that VC uses, which I christened the Lemon Method, uh, is guaranteed to produce the lowest overall possible returns by oversaturating markets. And he liked that. and. Uh, later on, I brought to him this, this work I started on uh, what, what had happened in the 2008 uh, banking crisis, and he said, you should develop that. And so I did, and a few years later, there was a, there was a paper published. Um, that paper, to, to get it published, because I, I, I didn't have anything in economics at the time, uh, both Steve Keen and John Quiggin uh, told me that I should write I should put on my paper that they endorsed the paper hmm. uh, because that would that would force the uh, editors to take it seriously. Hmm. Um, one of my most cited papers is on Bitcoin, the false premises and promises of Bitcoin, which was first published in 2013, and I last updated it a bit in, in 2018. Uh, that paper is a result of my looking at the Bitcoin and comparing it with their public, with the published claims that uh, Bitcoiners say. So, so that that's you know that's my background. Uh, I I also have publications in terrorism and and uh, policy relative to uh, biodefense, and um, uh, some of those are peer reviewed. I've got a couple of chapters and couple of West Point books and uh, papers also in, in, uh, uh, in, in biology. Uh, your, your interests are very varied. Uh, I, I read your blog. Um, can, you give, can you just give like just a, a quick bullet point of kind of the, of the other major topics that you are interested in? Well, it's, it's been kind of a progression. I, uh, I, I had a career in software. I did uh, manufacturing automation uh, software projects, and uh, I, I segued into uh, terrorism studies and that sort of thing. I ended up doing a, a simulator for epidemics, and that led to my first peer review publication and, and then uh, grad school. Um, in the meantime, I've also been an entrepreneur for many years now, like 30 years, a number of startups. Uh, so it, 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 it all fits together if you kind of if you look back at my life uh, rather than being 
just a hops, uh, hopscotch. And I also wrote, I, I wrote a book on uh, exposure to radiation and how to treat it because I had uh, developed a, a body of, of literature and, and, and things that I was encouraged by some physicians and others to, to you say, hey, go ahead and publish this. So I did, uh, that ended up taking a lot longer than I expected, a couple of years. In the process, that also became the foundation for me being, you could say, somebody who is highly critical of current nuclear policy because nuclear policy is based upon uh, the biology of radiation, which is wildly misunderstood and by most people and by virtually every journalist. So that, that's, a, that's a summary. Okay, great. And we're going to come back to the nuclear stuff at the very end. Um, I we you know we met in uh, intro to MMT on Facebook. Uh, yeah. uh, you you must have been there for I mean I've seen your name around, but you, you must have been there for a while. Uh, but we met recently, and I was never really interested in Bitcoin. I mean, kind of curious about it, but I was never really into it until the day. Uh, what was it? Three months ago now, maybe maybe a little around three months ago. I'll say I don't know when. Elon Musk tweeted about Bitcoin and I knew something I, as soon as I saw it, something felt fishy about it, but I couldn't put my finger on why. And then I went to the tweet and I saw some responses and I saw one, you know, I saw several of, you know, you just lost me $20,000 or something like that. You know, thanks a lot. You just saw, you just caused my family to lose $20,000. And then I remembered that his company Tesla was so-called pricing his cars in in Bitcoin, like just a couple months previous. And now his tweet of the tweet that I was talking about said, "We're no longer pricing in Bitcoin because Bitcoin is terrible." And I knew, I didn't know exactly how, but I knew that this was manipulation. I knew that he was manipulating the market. And in two hours from his tweet, the price of Bitcoin went down twenty percent. One tweet by one billionaire. And, and I suddenly became incredibly interested in Bitcoin. And, uh, and that's when I, that's, I, I don't know how, but that's, that led me to your paper. Um, so uh, I, I, can, you, can you briefly review, you know, fill in the blanks of what I, what I just said regarding the Musk incident and, and how you witnessed that? Well, I've, my opinion of Elon is, you know, whatever else you can say about him, he's, he's a bright guy. And he's, he has sussed out the fundamentals of Bitcoin fairly quickly um, just by looking at it and interacting with it a little bit. He, I, I, don't sh I don't think I share your view, although I haven't really thought about it except since you said, said this, that he was deliberately manipulating the uh, Bitcoin. I think uh, he was just seeing that this is really volatile and he, he dug into the fundamentals and he realized that it's not, it's not what it's claimed to be. It's just a, and it's just an information commodity that uh, has nothing behind it that people happen to be uh, 
focusing on and and also I think that there are some behind the scenes market makers who are who are maintaining the price uh, at a higher level than it should be uh, thing through mechanisms like tether and and uh, uh, what's uh, there's another one that is uh, that is run by uh, coinbase mm. uh, both of which are are tied to to major exchanges mm-hmm. and those those algorithms that they're you know if, if you just map it out you're like well this is this is a mechanism for uh, pumping without almost eff- you know almost effortlessly in terms of not not requiring investment. Uh, I don't know, but my very strong instinct is that he was manipulating Bitcoin like a puppet master, because this guy wrote. A computer software program, and at the age of fifty, at the age of fifteen, that yeah. was that a major company purchased. He has, you know, he invented the Tesla. He is inventing, you know, rockets to go out in the outer space, a tube to carry us on trains, you know, bullet trains and whatever in tubes. Yeah. This guy is smart, and he priced so-called priced Teslas in Bitcoin only months before, and then. And then that tweet that morning a few months ago said that, oh, Bitcoin is not good. I think, and again, it's just instinct, but my strong instinct is that his pricing Bitcoin, his pricing Teslas in Bitcoin was a setup so that he could then go back two months later to say Bitcoin is bad. It's bad for the environment. I, I have really, I have, I have very strong skepticism that he didn't realize those things already. Knowing who I, he is, knowing I, that he's I, in technology, knowing yeah. you know, and the, the statements that he made on Saturday Night Live the, the the Saturday before his tweet, and his comments about Dogecoin and so on. So that that's my instinct. That's my instinct. Yeah, I I I, I don't think that's true. I I think you know, I mean, he's 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 a guy who's very he's also very 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 busy, and he has limited he's had limited bandwidth to devote to this. There are. Uh, some one of one of his uh, biggest backers of uh, a, a VC who I, who I won't name is also a Bitcoin uh, promoter um, who who hasn't really thought it all the way through and a lot of people don't. I don't think Elon has thought it all the way through but I but what I think what happened there is that, the reason I don't think it's deliberate manipulation is because he had nothing to gain from it. He had put a bunch of money into Bitcoin. He had bought a bunch of Bitcoin. And then he, he got rid of the Bitcoin. And by, by slamming the market, he hurt, he hurt himself financially. You know that? So I don't, and, and, and that's just not how he operates. I've only talked to the guy once in person. It was, it was a long time ago. It was right when he was starting SpaceX. Okay. Uh, at the Mars Society conference that he went to, and you know, he just—he was just a guy, and he walked up to a group of us, and you know, we just started talking, and and you know, he's—he's—he is a very smart guy, but he's also—he's also a human being who has, you know, he's limited in by what he's able by the knowledge he's able to gather in in some period of time, and he is. He is remarkable in his ability to focus and and study, and he's got a he's you know he's got a he's got a really good background, but uh, you know that doesn't mean mean that he's perfect or or some kind of puppet master here because mm-hmm. um, 
the people that are closer to that are probably the people who are, you know, running something like Tether. Mm-hmm. And there's no, there is currently no, there's no way to bet on, bet on the downside uh, with, with cryptocurrency at this point that I'm aware of. Uh, you know, so, so you, 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 you can't buy, buy future options on, on cryptocurrency. I, I did have a, a, an interaction some few, a few years ago with a, you know, an email with a, uh, a company that was wanting to start offering options in, in Bitcoin. And, and I just warned them. I said, you know, that's a really bad idea because this is volatility incarnate. Yeah, of course. And, um, okay, so I'll, I'll just say a final point about it, and and sure. I, I I acknowledge that I'm uh, you know I, I trust you more than I trust me, but the final thought that I had about it that was that yes, of course, if he held Bitcoin, this would have hurt his stock of Bitcoin, but that doesn't mean that it couldn't have been some other kind of benefit, whether through a friend or whether through a deal or something to that effect. But I I, I have no doubt that you know if you're saying it's not manipulation, then you know that's fine. I. But uh, that was my. I don't, I don't see any evidence of it, and, and and it doesn't square with with what I've seen of him, and how he operates. Okay, fair enough. I, I don't pretend to 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 know. Um, okay, so let's go on. Um, what is the role of Bitcoin? So so I, I'd like to get your your positive the positive spin on Bitcoin because Bitcoin itself is not nece- is not in and of itself a bad thing. There's nothing wrong with Bitcoin. There's nothing wrong with cryptocurrency. What I think is wrong with it is when its promoters suggest that it can replace a country, a nation's money or the world's money. That, I think, is just a bogus, invalid claim. And I think that's where the negativity comes in. So before we get into that negativity, which will be next, can you speak of Bitcoin in a positive sense, meaning what is its role in a positive sense? Well... Um, there is three things. Uh, one of them is I see Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies in general as providing money for mostly for a younger generation who have been locked out of it. The, and that younger generation has been, I would say, colonized by the older generation through, uh, you know, forcing them to get in, you know, get into student loans, you know, getting them in hock from, from square one, which, which certainly wasn't the case for my generation. So, you know, you look at, you look at things like Bitcoin and Ethereum and, you know, there, there's over 2000 of them now. They're net, they're, you know, what they've done net for the people who have, who have created them and worked with them, particularly at the beginning, is they have allowed those people to to get money to do things they wanted to do. Uh, most of those things have been pretty good things. So, so that I see as the most positive role. Okay. Um, I see it as a transfer of wealth from some people who are fairly well off, like uh, the, the Winklevoss twins and, and others, uh, and, and even VCs, um, to people who are not so wealthy, uh, who as long as those people 
are buying Bitcoin and then selling it. You know, that, 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 um, that old Wall Street uh, saying, bulls make money, bears make money, pigs get slaughtered. Uh -huh. The pigs here are the hodlers. If you hodl for too long, you're going to get slaughtered because that, that's just, that's just how, how the markets tend to work. And, and, and let me and, let me let me just let sure. me just interrupt briefly. Which hodl is just a misspelling of the word hold. Uh, well, it's hold on for dear life. Right. It's it's, it's, it's hold an on. acronym. Yeah. It, and the person who there was like apparently according to something I looked just looking up that term, it was someone saying I'm holding on to it, but he misspelled it as hodl, H O D L. Uh -huh. That's my understanding. Okay. <laughs> that's sure. That's fine. Um, yeah, so, so there's that. And there's been a fair amount of, of wealth transfer from the Western world, you know, the USA, Europe, to places like Africa with, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm connected with some Nigerians who have done some really, really, really slick trading with, with, uh, with, with Bitcoin and other, and other cryptocurrencies. Um, and then... Another positive is that it's been a way for the world, and this was part of its original anarchic design. It's, it was, it's been a way to, to get around the shutdown of payments by banks to entities like WikiLeaks that mm. are serving a positive function, but have, been, have run afoul of, of uh, governments, in this case, Western governments. Mm -hmm. So those are the three things that I see as, as being positive. Okay. Uh, okay. So actually there are two negatives that, that come to mind. One is that they uh, inaccurately say that it could replace the world's money or nation's money. That's definitely one, which we'll get into. And the other is energy usage. That's the other bad thing about it. Um, uh, so, so let's get into, can you give that bullet list of the, of the major claims given by Bitcoin and why they are incorrect? Sure. So number one is the claim that that solving the quote double spending problem is an important historical invention. The reason that is not true is that when you eliminate quote double spending and you eliminate the possibility of virtual currency, this makes banking operations impossible. It throws us back to biblical times when money was pretty much uh, represented by gold and silver coins that people held, held on their person. The way the world works today and has worked for nearly a thousand years now, well, actually, you know, more like, more like uh, six, seven hundred, uh, the Medici's are, are, the Medici era is, is more or less credited with uh, inventing uh, banking and inventing reserve banking. I won't get into exactly how that appears to have probably happened, but the net is that banks started to become entities that would make, make a loan with money they did not have in their vaults. So, for example, in the Medici era, they held themselves most of the time to making loans 
such that they never had more than double the amount of money in their vault as loans outstanding. Mm -hmm. This requires essentially virtual money and credit. I think it's yeah, yeah, yeah. This is this is what you call credit. And if if you were to deposit a Bitcoin into a bank, if in order to loan out that Bitcoin, you have to actually move that specific Bitcoin to somebody else. As if it's you a no longer have it in the bank. Yeah. So you're so you are now in a zero sum system, and in a zero sum system. For every winner in terms of if you're an investor and, and you're able to, to get interest payments on your on, on your loan and get your principal and interest back, that means somebody else lost money because there's a fixed amount of money in the system. Mm-hmm. And when you do when you have that kind of a system, it means that an investor needs to charge 100 percent. If, if it's a fair system, they need to charge 100 percent or more. In order, if they need to charge 100% to break even on average, which is, which is a great weight on commerce because it makes everything more expensive. Mm-hmm. So this, this double spending thing happened in part because the inventors of Bitcoin actually believe that the creation of money by banks is quote the problem because it causes it, it causes more money to, to appear in the system. Let me let me ask you before before you continue, can you please define double spending and I, and I believe it's correct that virtual Bitcoin is just credit. Well virtual Bitcoin does not exist, at least not at present. it's it's, it's the concept of credit for Bitcoin. It's it's created yeah. it's created money that would be it would essentially, be credit for future Bitcoin, but yeah. yeah. So essentially, what you what 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 we're saying here is that Bitcoin has made it impossible to create more Bitcoin on the fly, at right. will. Right. It's deliberately made difficult to do, and in the modern world, what we the, well what the invention of banking did it was the original disruptive invention of the West is it made it possible for individuals who are you know fairly intelligent to direct the creation of money into enterprises that were that were useful to the population because the population wanted it whereas previous to that investment money was put into uh, into things based on the decisions of kings dictators you you could call them, who were military rulers who grabbed the loot and then divvied it up based on on political, for political reasons, based on who had supported them and or who made some agreement with them or who'd done them a favor. And that's how the world ran until uh, basic around the Medici era, although there's some indications that ancient Rome may have had this, the some intimations of the start of banking, uh, but it never really took off. Mm-hmm. So can you define the double spending problem? So, the, well, the double spending problem, according to the designers of Bitcoin, is that 
they don't want you to be able to create money on the fly. They don't want you to be able to create a dollar and then spend it, spend that dollar again. That's their idea of it. Double because spending they just means creating money. Yes, it, it just means creating money as far as I as far as I've been able to determine. So what does solving the bit the double spending problem even mean? Uh, that's a real that's it, what what it means is we're going to go back to we're going to implement electronically an an ancient system and in where empires created gold and silver coin to rule them and run things where and that was a limited supply that could only be be replenished or increased by mining or taking it from somebody else in war. Hmm. Okay. I, I'm not understanding the double spending problem then. The, 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 we, are, we are just simply avoiding people, uh, simply avoiding banks creating money, governments creating Basically, money. Yeah. So solving the governments double spending or anybody problem, else. solving the double spending problem means preventing banks and governments from creating money. Basically, yes. Okay. Also that, private, in, also private individuals in this case, and one of the one of the ways they may have gotten off track is that they, you know, these are people who are thinking about it from the point of view of private individuals who only thought about money from the point of view of, hey, I'm a guy who's who gets a salary, and I need mo- and I get money and then I spend it, and so they think of it as a fixed thing. Right. And that's, that's actually interesting. You know, people are born and people die. So it can't be a fixed thing because obviously as people, as the population grows, more money is needed. I mean, roughly yes. speaking. Yeah, that's interesting. Plus, okay. as technology grows, you know, we have all these things that weren't, you know, there are things around now that are commonplace, like cell phones and, and the sophistication of computers that we have that didn't exist really 30 years ago. Or if they did, they were in very primitive forms. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you were going through your bullet list. Uh, I think we kind of lost track. Uh, we're going to come back to the to the bank lending part, uh, but can you can you finish with your bullet list of the claims and how they don't hold up? Sure. Um, so the second one is that hoarding equals saving, and saving saving is positive money, and having positive money is good. Debt is negative money, and debt is bad. The problem with this thinking is that it is the thinking of it's kind of like an individual cell in the body thinking of itself by on its own relative to its blood supply. If you think of, mo- of money as the blood supply. Um, for the individual cell, it wants to get all the blood it can. But if it starts hogging the blood and hogging nutrients and then dividing on its own without regard for the for the body, we, call, we would call it cancer. Um, now, that's that, that metaphor breaks down, as most metaphors do. But the reality here is that business runs on debt. A business that has suppliers who bill, who bill it later, that business is getting loans from those suppliers. It's de facto. That's what's happening. And Apple, by the way, is a master of that. Businesses get lines of credit to meet payroll because they get contracts that are not paid in advance. You know, a company get you know, like if you get a government contract, you may take it may be two or three years before you hit the milestone where you're going to get your first payment. In the meantime, you've gone to a bank with your contract, you've gotten 
uh, a line of credit so you can you know create your offices you, you can you can buy your equipment you can pay your people um, businesses get loans to build factories office buildings they buy fleets of vehicles and for 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 consumers to have savings a business is going to be in debt and or the government is going to be in debt one of the answers I've gotten to that in the past has been, oh, well, that's not true because in biblical times, all money was gold and silver and, and things worked then. And this is partly correct, but in biblical times, you had a nearly static uh, coin supply, as we uh, discussed earlier a little bit. So this meant that if you were an investor to get interest on your money, there had to be a loser for there to be a winner. And in those good old days, uh, I remember I was on a I was on a walking history tour of in uh, in Italy, and they pointed to this this bar that was up about thirty feet above a stone plaza. They said, "What do you think that was for?" And we, you know, we really didn't know. And they said, "Well, one of the things it was for is they would throw a rope over that, and if and a debtor who wasn't able to pay his debt." Mm-hmm. They would tie his, his his wrists to his ankles, and then they would haul him up there, and then they drop him on the pave on the on the pavement. Nice. However many times to pay his debt off, and this was a public demonstration to show people they should pay their debts. Mm-hmm. The biblical period, however, solved this, and this is this is present in, in the Old Testament with jubilee years. Every seven years or so, all the debts would be declared forgiven. And I bet there was this, a lot of borrowing in year six. <laughs> well, who knows? <laughs> who knows? There, there, you know, there, there are still some uh, ultra-Orthodox who still do this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. You know, they still have jubilee years. And there's various dodges for getting around it. But uh, the... The, the, the net effect of that was also that it kept the temple in power because the temple collected tithes. And so the temple would always have money to restart the system, the system going. And it, and it prevented huge inequality from developing because just by chance and, and you, know, you know, things that happen, one person can do well and another person cannot do well. And then if they can't get out of that well they, there's they never have a chance we recognize that today with bankruptcy of course uh, a a third claim is that before before uh, let me interrupt sure. you before we get to the third claim just a brief follow-up on this and that is i believe it's correct to say that runs on debt is equivalent to saying runs on credit is that right yeah yeah yes okay. because right. credit and debt there there is there's an accounting identity between the amount, if, if you have money in your bank account somewhere in the world, there is there is a dollar of debt to account for that because money in the modern world is created by debt. Okay, all right, fair And enough. we don't have a mechanism for for uh, and for for canceling it out. Okay, all right. Next bullet point, please. So, Bitcoin was designed to be like gold, and this is so 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 bitcoin is basically based upon gold bug ideas of of money 
that the only real money is it was gold and that it was real money because it was scarce and and it was also good because you could uh, it has a limited supply and it's easily divided so bitcoins were designed to have a limited supply and be easily divided but this 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 scarcity theory of money is connected to the concept that money is a physical thing that is identical with dollar bills and coins, which it's not. Money is an abstract that we assign to those, those things that we hold in our wallet. And most of us now, it should be really much more clear than it was 200 years ago because most of us, all, almost all, the, we don't use cash very much. I mean, I have some cash in my wallet, but I don't use that to pay for very many things. I use credit cards, I use this, I use that. It's, it's all, uh, you know, it's, it's virtual money. So if we try to keep the money supply constant and expand it by splitting coins, we also have, we also create deflation. If you're not, if that's not what's happening, then by the same logic, that means that if, if I were to cut a, a nickel into 10 pieces, then each one of those pieces is also worth a nickel. Well, that's just, you know, that's, that's, you know, you start thinking about that and it's ludicrous. Um, this, this physical delusion about money is one that was shared by some very intelligent people, including, including Isaac Newton. And there was a period when Isaac Newton ran the Royal Mint and he, he had to be taken out of that position because he was running the Royal Mint into the ground and, and he was going to bankrupt the nation by um, insisting on putting more value of gold in the, in the coin than the coin was worth on face value, huh. which is not what you, but see, Isaac was a physicist, so he would tend to think that way. And again, let me interject that it's the scarcity of money when money is finite, but the world the population, what we do is not finite. That makes things quickly. Well, impossible. it's not that the world population isn't finite. It's that the world population in, is increasing the, and our yeah. techno technology is increasing. We are and, increasing. I mean, exponentially. Yeah, yeah that, that, that's a, yes, that's what I meant. Yeah. So we're increasing and what we do with it increases, but the money, the money that we're using doesn't change and can't change. I mean, that makes things impossible. Well, and, and there's a very specific reason that makes it impossible. The reason is that when money is, when, when the money you have today is worth more tomorrow and worth more the next day and it's increasing in value all the time, the, 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 more, the more that is true, the more intelligent it becomes to be a miser and never invest your money. And lack of investment will kill the, the economy. That's, I believe that's hoarding. They want to keep it because they know it's going to increase in value, which is kind of the mirror image of deflation, which is where you don't want to buy something because you know it's going to be cheaper tomorrow. And I think those two things together right. probably make things, you know, right. or magnify that. Right. And that's why the goal of the goal of the people who manage the money supply, like at the Federal Reserve, is to to have low continuous inflation. 
you don't want to get into a negative scenario because then you have all kinds of problems that you have to solve. But you also don't want your inflation to be too high because if inflation gets too high, then there's other issues. So you actually, want it to be a low level. And that's yeah, I actually, I, I actually, you're actually reminding me. I heard Stephen Hale on on a uh, uh, an MMT podcast where he said just that that it's not that you want inflation, it's that you need a little bit of buffer above zero because then that is dangerously close to deflation. So it's not that you want inflation; it's that you're avoiding deflation, is avoiding going negative. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so then, then an, another claim has to do with the distributed design, and this is this 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 is this is still touted as being a real a big strength of Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies that is distributed. And it's not in any one person's hands. But if you look at how it actually works out because of the economics of the cost of the boards that do efficient mining and the cost of the servers and electricity and all that, what that means, what that has meant is that very quickly, Bitcoin got centralized. Cryptocurrency creation gets centralized if it becomes popular into, a, into just a few hands. Now, those hands may shift. For example, there's probably a shift going on right now because China shut down the use of uh, off-season hydropower for, for use in mining, in, in mining Bitcoin. So there's probably going to be a shift there. But, but the net result of this is that it is de facto centralized, and it has been for many years now in the hands of just of a few operators who could often either one of them because it it, it actually isn't it, it was proven there's a paper where it was proven that it isn't actually 50 percent or 51 percent it's around 30 it's around one third if you can control that then you can control the bitcoin system and you can make it do whatever you want hmm. <clears throat> so we're already operating Bitcoin and, and other cryptocurrencies based on the, the good behavior, trusting of those who are, who are running the mining operations. So there really isn't a, a, a real distribution. And, and at this point, in order to become efficient, Bitcoin must centralize. Bitcoin uses huge amounts of electrical power to do a few hundred thousand transactions a month. When, you know, an entity like MasterCard, which I worked for one time, you know, the, the, they can do that many transactions in an hour. With much and less electricity. With, with a pittance in terms of electricity. Right. So, you know, the, the, that is is one of the technical as opposed to conceptual errors of the design of Bitcoin, because what it means is that they can't control their queues. Now, a queue is a line. When you go to a supermarket, if you've ever gone to Safeway at midnight, you know what a queue is. It's the line to get to the checker, and there might be 30 people in that line. Well, what Bitcoin, 
it, you know, if, if you were running that through, say, MasterCard, you have, you know, one system that is going to assign you to one checker and it'll get done. With Bitcoin, you can have anybody connect to the system at any time or drop out from it. And you have to go through all of those checkers. And they have to cross check with each other. And, and each checker has to go through each person, I believe, is also true. Yes, and it has to go through each transaction, which makes Bitcoin just absurdly inefficient. You cannot scale this. It's like it's it like every ten minutes something is added to the chain. I believe. Oh, uh, I think it, it, I, I couldn't give you a figure on that. Um, it's I, probably a lot. For, it, it's probably more than that. It it would depend on whether you were in the center of the of the system or not. But but um, roughly speaking, ten minutes every ten minutes, something like that. Every ten minutes, every period, very frequent periodic, a new chain is added. A new uh, link is added to the blockchain, which continues the transactions that have happened Let's throughout see, the how many, how many seconds in a month divided by 400,000? That would be the number of seconds on average between having something added to the blockchain. Right. 31 times 24 times 60 times 60 is 200, what is that? 2.7 million. And then that's, that's how many seconds divided, in a month? Divided by 400,000? Divided by 400,000, 6.7. No, uh, yeah, 6.7. 6.7 seconds? Okay, uh, so you're adding, so you're going to on average add something every six, every six or seven, seven seconds. Okay, there you go. So those are the major points of what's wrong with Bitcoin in terms of concept and, ex and, and execution. We've already, you already touched on the problem of the cost of electricity, which is outrageous, and particularly in today's time, you know, to to run a system like that with the energy budget of a of a nation, is you know, it's just not acceptable. And it's going to keep going up. And Bitcoin can't exist unless it keeps going up, because uh, right. there's something to the effect of Bitcoin can't exist unless it can be guaranteed that these transactions happen every six or seven seconds, which requires ever increasing levels of of energy. And yet people are so confident about Bitcoin, it's it's just a really kind of bizarre thing. Um, and the and you said about distributed that you know Bitcoin is obviously it's it's distributed, it's it's a database in in it's a database it's on the internet. It's not actually a database, it's a database log is what you're seeing there. Okay, it's a the blockchain is the blockchain is, is a log of is a transaction log. Okay, but it's public, it's on the internet, it's for everyone, you know, everyone has access to this. But it's not really distributed because, and Musk Musk's tweet really comes to mind. I mean, it's not democratic. I mean, maybe I'm using terms, mixing up wrong terms here, but it's it's really not democratic, even though it, it kind of professes to be democratic because Musk's tweet, whether it, regardless his intent, whether it was manipulation or whatever it was, it doesn't matter what it was, the fact that Musk has such control and that one tweet can cause Bitcoin's value to go down by 20% in two hours. That I think kind of shows that it's not democratic. There's, there's no democracy well, I, at all. I don't know. I don't, I mean, I, I don't think democratic is the right word there with the, 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 I think the right word is that there's no value underneath it. Yes. It doesn't represent anything. You know, there's not, you know, 
the, the American dollar is supported by the power and credit of the U.S. government, which sets prices to a significant degree by what it's willing to spend on contracts that it pays for. Right. And also based on what it, you know, what it requires us to pay in taxes in that, in, in that currency. Mm -hmm. So backing is the more appropriate word. A democratic. Yeah, I would say backing. Is, yeah. yeah, no, I, I agree. Dem it's backed. It's not backed by the power of the state or anything. What it is backed by is something that is impossible to, it's ever changing. And that's the group psychology of all Bitcoin holders and those that influence them. That's what it's backed right. by. Right. And you have, you have an entity like Ethereum, which is, which, which is actually a security. And, and that's, I believe that's what the SEC, uh, coin offerings, um, the SEC ruled that those were, were actually securities and these coins were just another form of a share uh, document. That, that, that a company was selling. Mm -hmm. So you don't see the same kind of volatility with Ethereum. Ethereum, the, uh, Natali Buterin, he recognized quite a long time ago that this proof of work issue was a problem and has been working. And I, I don't know if the implementation has been done yet, but he's been working on proof of stake instead to make the system more efficient. And that makes sense. Essentially, he's, he is conforming, he's trying to conform his Ethereum coin to the meaning of a, mar of a market, of a stock market. And that, you know, that, that just makes sense. Mm-hmm. I, I very briefly, I was, I was a computer programmer for five years and very briefly I programmed Ethereum, <laughs> oh, really? but, but yeah, I, I, it was difficult, uh, because there is no computer for Ethereum. It's just existing on the internet, but the, what Ethereum is, as I understand it is in addition to just a log, Bitcoin is just a, the, you know, the log of all transactions. Ethereum is also that it's also a log of all transactions, but I believe each node can have a full piece of software on it. That's my understanding of it. I couldn't say that sounds pretty close to Bitcoin, but um, that's that's my memory. This this was like yeah. fifteen years ago, but that that is my memory. Oh, that okay. that each node has more capabilities that you can actually put functionality into each link on the chain. But yeah. um, okay, uh, all right. Well, then let's 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 take a very brief tangent and then let's move on to another subject. And that brief tangent is: Can you just very briefly bring up? Uh, define this, the Stamp Act and how that relates to Bitcoin. Sure. Um, the Stamp Act was created to uh, make it illegal to create a token of exchange that could be used for, for, um, um, for payments that was worth less than $1. And that has some history uh, to it because there was a time when, when uh, during the depression, when pennies and other in you know other coins suddenly had, or had the metal was worth more than the coin was, so 
people were started hoarding hoarding those, and so the government created this to to get the to get the coinage back in circulation. I don't think that is very likely to get used against Bitcoin. Um, now, I'm just I'm just thinking this through from what I know of legal cases, and, but you know, there's a huge problem of volatility with Bitcoin, and at this point. Bitcoins are priced at, you know, huge amounts. I think you're gonna you're you're gonna be have a hard time convincing a jury that if one fifty fifty thousandth of something is still worth a dollar or more on some days, mm -hmm. you know, in the past year, then, you know, they should apply the Stamp Act to it. I I think a jury's gonna have a, have trouble doing that. Mm. Bitcoin is fairly popular. Uh, at this point, I don't see it doing any major harm um, except to people who buy too much of it and don't sell out. And it's since it's popular, you know, prosecutors have budgets. They also they want to take on cases that they're more likely to win. It may be difficult to find a jury that would that would work with that. Okay. And then there's also the problem that most at this point, most of the infrastructure for Bitcoin and a whole lot of the traffic is not inside the U.S. United States. So there, we, we don't have actually have jurisdiction. Ah, that's interesting. Now, they might be way, there might be a way for them to get around that by um, using international terrorism treaties, which has been used on people that steal movies, for instance, to extradite them. But then to prosecute, I think you'd have to show it as a RICO case. If there's a legal challenge to Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies, I think the most likely route is going to be that um, the SEC or somebody says, oh, this is a fraud because, you know, as I just went through, these foundation principles are wrong and, theref and therefore it cannot, since it cannot do what it was to, what it was sold as, this this represents a fraud upon the public. The people I think that are at serious risk relative to that here are probably the VCs, because when you get into that, you can get into personal liability and reach through into personal fortunes of individuals who were the directors who put money into supporting cryptocurrency hmm. um, that i think is is something that could hold water whether whether you know the sec will, will bother with doing that i don't know but but that's my take on on those legal issues well actually then this brings up uh this is the perfect time to ask my other kind of tangent question is and that is you sent me an article about uh, a venture capitalist VC talking about Bitcoin. And in my ignorance, the, the, the article really kind of seemed mundane to me, but you were, you had told me this article is crazy. These people are crazy. So can you, Oh, that was the P the Pittsburgh, the pitch book article. Yes. Yeah. So, so briefly talk about how, why, <laughs> why, yeah, why I, I think I called it gobsmack. <laughs> Well, it was a little more than yeah. That was one of your one of your yeah, terms. And crazy. Yeah. Okay. There you go. <laughs> so, so why? What an article that seemed to me to be pretty mundane. Why was it so crazy to you? Well, 
the reason the reason I said that was that this is an article by a serious group of analysts who who spoke about crypto as if it there was something real there, you know, when it is clearly a mania. There is nothing there except what people are willing to think about it. Now, crypto has been been compared to the art market in that, you know, the art market is kind of similar. You have commodities that are, you know, they're only worth what people are willing to pay, so to speak. Mm-hmm. But there are, you know, I I like art. I, you know, I've, I've spent some money on art and I, you know, I know what I like. So, yeah, but you can't, Bitcoin doesn't even have that. You, you, you can't do anything with a Bitcoin except hmm. price it. That's an ex, and exchange it as long as it has a price that, you know, is, is positive. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's number one. The other thing is that by now, everybody who looks at crypto should know that Bitcoin farms take incredible amounts of electrical power, so much so that the power that has been consumed is probably, the cost of that is probably greater than the the market cap Hmm. of Bitcoin. Hmm. And it is definitely going to to exceed it because you have, as you you, you pointed out, and I think uh, Taleb pointed out also, you're talking about ever increasing amounts of electrical power. And the larger the, net the system gets, the more electrical power it's going, it's going to require. Unless that is, it's possible that, you know, Bitcoin could reform itself by becoming centralized and starting to be managed. And then you have some, but then, and then you have something that's just, you know, it's just an empty, thing that some agency, private agency is, is d- dishing out that people are, are asked to, to value and so on. So, you know, you put that together, the exacerbation of global warning for what? And also that people can chase a fantasy based on some algorithm is, that is itself based on gross misunderstanding of money, banking, and how the, how the world works the primary fantasy that Bitcoin is selling is, you know, it's an ancient one. It's getting rich quick for nothing. You know, it's the guy selling you the Brooklyn Bridge and people buying it. And as long as those tokens for the Brooklyn Bridge are, have other, you know, have other suckers, then it's going to be, it's going to be valued. Sooner or later, the music is going to stop. I don't know when it's going to stop, but the miners will go away because the miners are only in it to make money in the present. Anybody who, who hasn't cashed out in fiat currency will have nothing left of what they, what they thought they had on paper. So that's why I called it, you know, I, I, was, I, I, was, I was gobsmacked that a, a group of analysts like PitchBook would do such a poor job. <laughs> Uh, so it, it really is like that Bitcoin is really propped up by its miners, which means that it's really propped up by energy, which currently is fossil fuels. And then as soon well, as that- Well, it's, it's not propped up by that. It's propped up by 
belief. Well, and yes, it requires fossil. It requires it requires energy to create more because it was designed that way. But that doesn't prop it up because it's not making anything real. I don't. I don't mean so, it's backed by. I just mean that the, the that it, it is inherent in the system that if. Uh, that if those miners go away, if the fossil fuel goes away, then the miners go away, then the faith in the Bitcoin is going to go away almost instantaneously. I think yeah, that's you'd, you'd only have a few people, you'd only have the part of the network left, which was private party individuals running it on their PCs, which is where it started. Right. And you can't even log future transactions anymore. So the system would go immediately die off, or at least very quickly would die off. And it, it, is that fair to say? Um, something like that could hobble along for a long time if there were enough people to continue to hobble, you know, to make it hobble. But that would dramatically affect the group psychology. Oh, yeah, it, it would. Yes, it would dramatically affect And it. since it is backed by group psychology, that's a very serious right. thing. So, and it's, and it's really quite similar to our, our food and water supply for the, for the world is propped up by fossil fuels. I mean, I don't know. I don't know. I'm not knowledgeable about this, but I'm pretty sure that that's an accurate statement. That fossil fuels is the reason that we can feed eight billion people, you know, and have you know, uh, bulk yeah, stores filled with is. yeah, and which is. is which is largely fossil fuels currently. Fossil fuels and yeah, you know, yeah. Well, that, that's 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 Garrett's work. Garrett. His twenty. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, his 2011 paper. He he showed that there was a there was a stable. He used all the data he was able to to get, which was something like fifty or sixty years of it, and you know he 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 integrated that together, and he showed that there was a there was nine point seven milliwatts of energy per dollar of nineteen ninety. $1990. Okay. Um, so if, if you normalize, normalize that, the amount of money in the world was corresponded to the amount of energy that was being consumed. Mm-hmm. And that makes a lot of sense from a physics point of view, because energy is work. And energy allows humans, you know, we we used to have massive numbers of slaves because in order to make a civilization work, you had to have all these people to do all all that manual labor. Mm. Whereas now most, you know, most of it is done by machines. Dinosaurs.
Today I talk with author, researcher, and entrepreneur Brian Hanley about his paper, The False Premises and Promises of Bitcoin. The paper, published in 2013 and last updated in 2018, is essentially a summary of Bitcoin and cryptocurrency through an MMT lens. I've always been interested in Bitcoin, but never took the time to understand or even read about it. I just noticed the strong and even emotional views about it online, both for and against. On May 12, 2021, however, a tweet by Tesla CEO Elon Musk caused the worldwide price of Bitcoin to decrease by 17% in two hours. This caused the wealth of every single Bitcoin holder to lose a total of $170.6 billion. I suddenly became extremely interested in Bitcoin. I initially thought, actually strongly suspected, that Musk's tweet was part of an effort to deliberately manipulate the price of Bitcoin. My guest disagrees. Regardless, it's obvious that if such devastation can be caused in only a couple hours by a single tweet by a single billionaire, then the very foundation on which Bitcoin and cryptocurrency sits must be called into question. My fascination with this incident eventually led me to Brian's paper, among other MMT-informed sources about Bitcoin, links to which you can find in the show notes. Setting aside energy usage, there's nothing inherently wrong with Bitcoin or cryptocurrency. It's something to invest in, and if you know what you're doing, and you choose to do it, then you can make a bit of money off of it. The problem comes in falsely believing that Bitcoin and its ilk are in any way issued by national governments, and especially that Bitcoin can somehow replace the money of a government, or even more absurdly, the entire world. It betrays a fundamental misunderstanding of how modern economic systems work, were a government to adopt Bitcoin as its official currency, as just tragically, kind of, happened in El Salvador, then the government would make the personal wealth of every citizen vulnerable to another potential tweet by another billionaire. Those who choose to invest in Bitcoin choose to take that risk. Those who are unlucky enough to be among the nearly 7 million citizens of El Salvador, that risk and vulnerability was just foisted upon all of them. Bitcoin is backed not by gold or state power but entirely by the group psychology of all Bitcoin holders and those that influence them. In other words, Bitcoin only has as much value as its holders believe it has, not unlike any other fad or mania, such as tulip bulbs in the 1600s and beanie babies in the 1990s. A topic Brian and I discuss that I don't think we cover sufficiently is the double spending problem. When a dollar bill or a nickel is spent, it physically changes hands. This is something we can keep track of easily and know for sure that it was only spent once. Digital money, digital anything, can be easily duplicated many times over. So how can it be ensured that a Bitcoin was only spent once? This is where the blockchain comes in. Every transaction ever made with every Bitcoin is permanently and publicly logged onto the blockchain. Although it's impressive that Bitcoin has solved this problem, 
the solution is also a reason why Bitcoin is so inefficient and energy hungry. Every few seconds, a new transaction is added to the blockchain, a process that must traverse every existing transaction, duplicating the information of the current transaction onto every block in the chain. This algorithm is central to the system and is the foundation to eliminating double spending. The other reason it's so energy hungry is the manner in which new bitcoins are generated, with each new coin requiring more computing power than the last. The process must also gracefully handle multiple simultaneous attempts to update the blockchain as well as deal with potential failures without corrupting existing items. Here's a crucial and related topic you'll hear Brian and I discuss. Modern society is only possible because of credit. Credit is the ability to obtain goods or services before payment is made. In other words, a loan or an IOU. Your boss obtains your labor before you get your paycheck. You pull out a credit card to buy a candy bar and a soda, but you don't actually pay for it until the bill comes due at the end of the month. I commit to purchasing a home, but don't actually pay for it until months later when seated at the closing table. And I don't really pay for it until my final mortgage payment 30 years later. Were Bitcoin to replace a government or bank's money, it would only be possible by eliminating the very concept of credit. Were this to happen, it would bring us back to the days when lords had vaults filled with gold and gave their customers certificates to obtain that gold on demand. As long as these forerunners to banks properly calculated the number of people who actually wanted to redeem their gold, they should be fine. If they estimate incorrectly, then there can be a run, and the Lord will have to literally defend their stock of gold, potentially running out if everyone wanted it back. In addition, gold certificates are also desirable because gold is heavy and inconvenient. It's also easier for regular people to hide and secure a certificate than an actual piece of gold. Critically, however, banking based on Bitcoin would be just that scenario but without the certificates. Banks would literally only have gold. Customers could only deposit and withdraw and borrow actual gold. So the population and its needs continue to grow, but the amount of gold remains unchanged. It means that society is forced to become a 100% pure barter economy. In other words, modern banking and therefore modern society is made impossible. Finally, note that Bitcoin certificates or Bitcoin credit or what Brian calls virtual Bitcoin are impossible not because it's technically infeasible, but rather because the concept is simply anathema to the supporters of Bitcoin, resulting from a very libertarian, anti-government point of view. To close, I'd like to share a quote from Nathan Tenkis. Quote, the very fact that Bitcoin's price gets quoted in fiat shows that cryptocurrency is an adjunct to state money. I'll take the idea that pure cryptocurrencies are a threat to state money, not when Bitcoin's dollar price gets very high, but when its dollar price is irrelevant. And now, on to my conversation with Brian Hanley.